So we're continuing in, in our series, and this has been uh, a super summary series that I've been saying. Uh, we've been trying to prepare people for where they're going this summer to get an opportunity to get away and who you are becoming, wherever it is that you that you are. Uh, we never stop growing. We never stop being influenced. Uh, the reasons that we need to take a break often come right along with us whenever we we travel away. And so we're trying to look at places in the Bible where we tend to go to during the summer and experiences that we might have. And looking at these places where God meets people, not on their summer vacation, but in, in the mountains or on the shore, um, around a campfire, so on and so forth. This week, we're going to look at an experience uh, on the docks that the Apostle Paul has with a group of leaders. Let me just give you a little bit of background. He's called these leaders that he has served with for over three years uh, to meet him uh, so that he can say farewell. Uh, they've traveled about 30 miles to be with him, and this is probably the last time he will ever see them. And so these are dear friends uh, that are saying goodbye. And that actually, too, is a part of our summer experience. We get together with family that we've not seen. And then at some point, we have to say farewell. And so let's listen with those ears as we listen to this passage. What does he say to somebody, to a group of leaders, knowing that he's never going to see, see them again? What are, what's the words that he chooses? So with that in mind, I'm going to just take one brief section from Acts 20. And I think we have 10 verses or so here. Paul says this, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions and everything I did. I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remember the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that, he, that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him accompanied him to the ship. That's the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, even this summer, we've had to say goodbye to the people that we love dearly because you've called them elsewhere. Uh, and so whether it's moving away or passing on into eternity, uh, the things that we convey in those moments are essential to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, you would help Ground us in the reality of the story that we're talking about, and the reality of the story that Christians are called to live. And I pray you'd help us learn a little bit more what it means to be human. In this passage, Lord, would you guide us by word, 
your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So about 60 years ago, I think, from what I was, I've been reading, um, four lads from Liverpool came to New York City. They performed at the Ed Sullivan Theater, and they changed American culture, and they changed world culture, too. And, of course, I'm talking about the Beatles. Um, they landed here, Beatle invasion. And, of course, their message was what? It was one of peace, love, and rock and roll. And that message spread everywhere, uh, even behind, behind uh, what was called the Iron Curtain. And there was a filmmaker who was a teenager living uh, in East Germany at that time, by the, or I think actually in the Czech Republic, excuse me, uh, by the name of Milos Forman. And Milos Forman said when he heard the Beatles for the first time, he said, if the people on the other side of this wall create like that, think like that, frolic like that, have joy like that, there's no way they can be my enemy. And so what he, he says is, is that more than any one politician, it was the Beatles that brought an end to communism. And so as we think about these four ordinary guys from a very ordinary town, created this movement. And so movements really matter. Leaders really matter. Uh, leaders within movements, they, that all matters. And yet, movements fail. Leaders falter. Um, we, we often hurt one another. Even the Beatles broke up. I think collectively, all people on all continents would say, that shouldn't have happened, right? And yet it did. But imagine, if you will, that in that time, somebody came to them and said, hey, look at the lyrics that you wrote. Look at this message. Let me remind you of this message. Let me remind you um, of who you are, what you believe, where you were heading. Let me... Let me give you a, a glimpse into the obstacles that may stand in their way. What if that particular person who's conveying this news didn't just do it through a podcast or do it through a TED talk in 20 minutes, but actually demonstrated all of these qualities to them day in and day out for three years, right? He gave them visible demonstrations, ordinary gestures of love and discipline so that it reminded them of the story that brought healing to their own relationships, that restored uh, much of their own past lives, so on and so forth, and gave them hope and purpose moving forward. If you can imagine that, that's exactly what is taking place with the Apostle Paul. You know, is is uh, um, I would just say pervasive as rock and roll has been, the Beatles have been in the world. The gospel is far greater and has been far more pervasive. And it came out of even humbler means, I'd say. And here, here's Paul at this central and very important stage in the life of the church who has been discipling and ministering to these friends. And now he's never going to see them again. And now he's entrusted that God, everything he's given them, that they will carry it on. That they won't fail. That this movement won't come to an end. And so it's the last things he's going to say to them. And what does he say? He does three things, I think, that we can learn. He warns them. He woos them. And then he weeps with them. So first he warns his leaders of the obstacles that are coming. He woos them. Uh, he woos his community, shall we say. And then he weeps with his friends. 
And so as we look at this passage, as we prepare ourselves uh, to grow uh, in our own relationship with God, let's, let's heed his warning, shall we say. So first Paul, the last thing he's going to say to them, he warns his leaders. Um, Paul is a leader of leaders. He's a pastor of pastors. He's a shepherd of shepherds. And so one of the, uh, so he is, even in this moment, pastoring, shepherding, guiding them. Uh, leading them, and he he leads them in a way that shepherds tend to lead in, in the scriptures. And there are four things that shepherds tend to do, and I've shared this before, but it's worth hearing again. Shepherds know, lead, feed, and protect the flock. And so it's out of this these categories that he warns them. What does it mean to know? A shepherd really knows their sheep. They have a relationship. They understand how individual sheep function, their personalities, the, the things, their tendencies. They know them very well. I'm thinking of Samantha's just got a, a new dog. She's learning this dog. And if you have a chance to talk to her, you can tell that she has a personal relationship with this animal. She loves it. She knows it. She's she's uh she's learning all about this this creature and how this creature uh reacts in certain situations, how to navigate this this particular animal. Uh so too, Paul knows these these leaders. He knows their their tendencies. He knows how to help navigate them, the way to communicate, how to listen to them. A good shepherd can do that. It's not easy. Uh, the second thing is he he leads them. A good shepherd is one who can uh, cultivate trust within a, a group of livestock, so they actually follow him. You know, there's a saying that butchers. Uh, butchers, uh, butchers walk behind a, a flock, but shepherds walk in front. And the butchers are walking behind because there's a sense there's danger, and they're pushing them towards right uh, the place where they'll be slaughtered. The shepherds lead; they walk in front, and the sh and the sheep trust that shepherd so much that they're willing to follow even into uncertainty. And so they lead them. Well, where do they lead them? They lead them into places where they can feed and be enriched and have that nourishment. Sheep can really just eat about anything. And oftentimes, if they're, you're not careful, they'll eat things that'll make them sick repeatedly. And so uh, to be able to know uh, where to, to provide sustenance, so on and so forth. And Paul has been very good at that. He's very good at casting a vision and creating a relationship with a group of individuals so that they actually learn to trust him and follow him, even in the midst of uncertainty. He also protects them. And this brings us more to our point. Sheep, everybody's a predator to a sheep. There are wolves, but they're the most vulnerable of animals. There's nothing about a sheep that can protect itself. So they need shepherds. And Paul looks after, and shepherds look after, uh, their flocks, their communities, with that same sort of understanding that there are people uh, all around that are preying upon the flock. His sheep are often a metaphor for, for human beings, that we're susceptible, that we're easily persuaded, that we find ourselves often in danger. And so what does he do? He warns them. He warns them. He says, watch yourself. Watch yourself, your shepherds, your leaders, right? 
your followers of Jesus first go. You may be a pastor, you may be an apostle, you may be a, a, you know, a leader in the church, but be careful, watch yourselves. You're a Christian first, you're a follower first, you're a shepherd first, or excuse me, you're a sheep first. Now, this is a not a new theme in the scriptures. You see this in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, you can, uh, we'll just breeze through these. As they are faithful watchmen, they deliver themselves. Right? There's an awareness of your own susceptibility. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. If you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Then 1 Corinthians 9, I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So out of his own experience, as a leader who knows he's a sheep, as a shepherd who knows he's a sheep, he says, watch yourself. Know your heart. Lead your heart. Uh, feed your heart. Protect your own heart. And in so doing, you will not only spare yourself, but you'll spare those around you. So why? Well, he gives us a hint here why. What is one of the main reasons why they need to be uh, on guard? And that is, he says that wolves will come. There will be people who are seeking to prey upon a community. And the primary way in which they prey upon the community is they devour the community. By doing what? By distorting the truth. Certainly in, in ancient times, people would come into the into the, a new church and cause violence. What, what Paul is talking about is that they're not just doing violence to people, but they do violence to the truth that they actually believe. And what is that truth? That's the truth about the grace of God in Jesus, right? That's that's the truth, right? But how does that go? How do they go around uh, distorting that 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 truth? And here's the primary way that that's often done. And it starts at the beginning of the story of the Bible. They separate the commands of God from the loving character of God. A way to distort the truth is to separate God's commands from his loving kindness. To separate the things that he calls us to do from his own actual goodness and character. Right? And in a sense, I'll say you see this in the book of Genesis at the very beginning. God's created man and woman. He's created human beings. And he says to Adam and Eve, you're not to eat of this particular tree. You can eat of any tree in the world. This place is for you. Steward it, love it, tend to it. This, this is for you. Don't eat of that one tree. Because if you do, you'll, you'll know good and evil. You'll be like God. And that sounds like a really enticing thing, but we discover it's not a good thing at all to know, at least in that way. And so they, they they obey until the serpent comes and begins to question not what not uh, he begins to question not whether that will actually come to pass, but he begins to question the character of God and saying, is that really true? Do you really trust him to do that? And so God's command becomes somewhat arbitrary because it's not anymore tied to his character, to his person. A theologian that I really appreciate, Senator Ferguson, he says, what the devil tries to do is make every person a legalist to have a transactional relationship with God. If I do these things and give them to you, will you bless me? Will you reward me? Will I have a good life? 
in a sense, it's kind of like feeding the beast. I just have to give these good deeds to God. And of course, uh, legalism, or I would say, maybe I said this, pragmatism is another form of legalism. You know, I am in a circumstance or situation that I cannot see my way through, or maybe it just, it takes too much effort for me to be like Jesus in here. So I'll just do the bare minimum, right? I'll just fall back onto my own tendency. And so in that same way, we're distorting the truth. Right? To follow Jesus is to say, uh, let me get to my, to my notes here. Um, to not choose necessarily the path of least resistance. And so doing sort of forego God's God's commands. Uh, there will always be people to seek, uh, seek to try and get us off vision. People will try to destroy us, destroy you. There will be people who seek to undermine, people who tend to want to wound. What, what does Paul say here? He doesn't say trust your gut. He doesn't say follow your heart. Uh, he says just the opposite. He says when the wolves come, you need to know, lead, feed, and protect your own heart so that you don't treat others the same way that you've been treated. So that you are a living witness of a true gospel. That your relationship with God is not based primarily on your fidelity to him, but it's based primarily on his fidelity to you. Blaise Pascal says this, he says, truth is so obscure in these times and falsehood is so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know the truth. Unless you love the truth, you cannot know the truth. Now, he's not talking about abstract things. He's thinking about Jesus when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I love God's truth because I love God. Or I want to love God's truth because I want to love God. I want to obey this out of my love for God. To love God's law is to love God himself. So first, he warns people. It's going to get rough. But remember the truth. Second, he woos people. Now, woo is kind of a strange word. It seems like a little bit manipulative. And it's a word that I've gathered from one of these strength finder tests or personality assessment tests. And what that simply means is woo is an... Uh, acrostic for win others over to win others over and paul is a master if you will of winning others over and he has to be because paul is suspect in every community that he goes into but he wins others over not for himself but for jesus now if you remember uh why does he win others over? He seeks to win over others for the sake of the gospel. But I would say he has to, because if you remember from last week, Paul was not just a skeptic of faith. He wasn't just an antagonist. He was a terrorist in the Christian community. He brutalized the church. And of course, we saw last week that there was this great conversion and he became this great leader. But let's be real. Every community he went into, he had to reestablish himself. You know, he had to speak to people who would have known people that he had brutalized, that he'd imprisoned, that he'd taken their, you know, robbed them of their money and, and or, you know, just completely hampered them. 
So he would have always been having to win them over again, reestablish himself, not for his own gain, but so that people could see Jesus clearly. He never wanted his uh, own character to come into conflict with what he was actually promoting. And so in this passage, he, he talks about, it seems like he's somewhat bragging, but he's just simply trying to make clear, remember how I lived. Remember how I really was changed. How everything I was doing always was for you, for Jesus. So he's winning others over. Why? Because he took grace so seriously. And when you watch somebody take something very seriously, it makes you want to take that seriously. Right? Uh, at my father's funeral, there was a military presence at his funeral. And so you had these two kids who were service service people, a uh, man and a woman, who did the flag ceremony. And the precision that they used, the intentionality with which they folded that flag, they didn't need to win anybody over in that service. Uh, but it was a service that I don't think there was a lot of people there that had a certain military background. But everybody was absolutely fixed on what they were doing because they did it with such honor, such integrity. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And it, they looked like they were in high school. That's how young they were. But what they did, they took so seriously that everybody else took it seriously too. And in a sense, Paul is saying, the grace of God is what holds this community together. Never forget that. How seriously do you take grace? Like really, how seriously do you take grace? Is there an area of your life in which somebody would, would say, I don't, the thing that he, he talks about, I don't see with that. It's too confusing for me. Now, I'm not talking about being perfect, but I am talking about a community of people who's always on guard has some self-awareness and has people around you that are able to look into your life. You know, one of the things that I love the most about uh, our storefront space here is it has these massive windows and we cannot hunt. We have to, we're basically on the street in full view and I need that. The church needs them. The world needs to be able to look into the lives of the church and find consistency, find a counterculture, find a community of people that don't just fall into their own tendencies and this is the way I was made, and this is how I always do things, but says, no, grace is making me take the, the road less traveled. How seriously do you take grace? There is a, a pastor by the name of Robert Murray McShane Robert Murray McShane was not known to be a great preacher, but he was known to be an incredible presence in his community. And when he died, somebody uh, on his nightstand, there was a letter that they found. He died a very young man uh, in the 1700s here in, in the Northeast. And he died a pretty young man. They found a letter. And in the letter, it, there was this quote that said this. Uh, it was written by a man who had come to church for the first time. And he says, it was nothing you said or did that made me first want to be a Christian. 
It was the beauty of holiness which I saw in your face. How seriously do we take grace? Not so that it's just like an image on our face, like a mask, but that it permeates our being. So we don't even have to say anything. Somebody notices there's something different. There's an integrity there. Before I end this point, let me just say, <laughs> as somebody who's a leader in the church, and I'm looking at people who are leaders of the church, get to pray for your leaders. Pray for them. We have elders, deacons um, that need to guard, protect, lead, feed their own hearts. And the warning is for them too. And so as a church, movements fail, leaders fail. Please pray for us. Pray for Crystal Lou and Ryan and Tom and and, and uh, you know, I'm not gonna mention everybody, but our elders and deacons. Pray for them by name better than I just did. Uh, third, so he wounds his leaders, he woos his community, and then he weeps with his friends. If somebody leaves Facebook, we don't really weep, do we? Right? Why? Because it's not a real community. It's not a community. When somebody leaves Facebook, you're like, and they make an announcement, you're like, you don't really get this, do you? Like, this is for me to watch you. This isn't much more than that, right? So there's a different level of intimacy. Of course, you move to New York City, and you can have that kind of interaction with the city. You can always keep people at a distance. You can have a shallow relationship in which you're sort of sort of relationally competitive. You know, your relationships are formed on geography or, or vocation, but they're not true intimacy. They're not thick, life-changing friendships. And those are the kinds of friendships we were made as human beings. We're meant to be in profoundly interdependent relationships. And if you look at verses 36 to 38, do you have friendships like this? This is so bold, right? He knelt down with all of them and they prayed. And praying together is just, it can be a very intimidating thing. Why? Because you reveal your own heart, not just before God, but before other people. They wept as they embraced and they, they kissed appropriately, right? What grieved them most was this statement. They would never see his face again. Now imagine that. They live in super tumultuous times where they would have had so much more to be concerned about. Are they gonna live to see another day? How are they gonna do without him? Right. So on and so forth. But their biggest grief was that they would never see their beloved friend. That's a profound community. He weeps with these brothers. And of course, as New Yorkers, I said, it's, it's hard for us to invest in these kinds of relationships. You know, the average person lived in New York for three years. For three years. And so if you're going to commit to this city, that means you're committing saying hello and saying goodbye and you're not shrinking from the, the relationships that are offered or the opportunity for relationships in the in-between that you commit you know you don't walk walk you know anybody familiar with the heisman trophy right sorry you know the heisman trophy it's like this somebody with a ball and they're guarding the defender 
most of us New Yorkers did like this. Keeping people at a distance. And Paul weeps with people. And nobody said goodbye more than Paul. Paul's always saying goodbye to people. And he's always weeping. But it's not goodbye forever. It's so long. It's just so long. Um, this is the true community. This is the kind of community that you were made for. This is the kind of community that we hope to foster here so that we can be like what our vision said, be a, a, a visible expression of the glory of God in this neighborhood. Um, our relationship with God isn't fully complete. It's not fully lived out until grace is made visible in that way. You know, a lot of the Christian faith is hearkening to a promise of an inheritance. But there is such thing as a living will. Right? A living will is when your parents actually give you money that they were going to save for you when they died. They give it to you now so you can take advantage of it. Community is the part of the living will of the Christian life. That you get to experience now aspects of heaven here on earth through the relationships that you you enter into through the relationships that you commit to, and you cultivate. You know, a lot of us, when we think about grace in Christian community, that down payment is all, all part of the grace that God extends us. When we think about grace, we think about it, we can think about it in a couple of things. One, grace is legally binding. It's contractual. Now, when we think about legally binding contracts, uh, especially when in our relationship with God, we tend to think of them like mortgages. I pay, I get to stay, right? If I don't pay, I get kicked out. That's the relationship. But that's not what the gospel is about. It, the gospel is far more like an inheritance, a legally binding contract in which somebody says, my estate is for you, even though you've done nothing to earn. My estate is for you because you're my child, and I have built this and cultivated for you, and it's yours, and it's legally binding. It's completely free. It's completely yours. It's all by grace. So how do we avoid becoming individuals in communities that fail and falter. I don't know that we really do. You're going to fail and falter. But we are, we also have a, this built-in mechanism as Christians in our community of confession and repentance. And to be able to come here and to be honest about ourselves actually furthers the movement. It makes it more true that this is real. That we're changing, we're growing. You know, imagine what it was like to be in the Godhead where there was no sin, but there was deep intimacy and community and love and nourishment from all eternity within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's in a sense what we're working towards and and, and overcoming to uh, demonstrate here on earth. Also consider the good shepherd. Jesus himself warned his disciples that there will be come a time when they will scatter like sheep. 
And in that time when they scatter, what does Jesus do? Does he say, forget them? They never loved me. They betrayed me. They were untrue. No, he goes to the cross. Having warned them, he goes to the cross. And what does he do? He stays to persuade to persuade you and I that the debt of our sin has been forgiven. He's wooing us. He's wooing the world, trying to win us over. Right. How many times do we see Jesus weep? So that we can overcome. So that we can love. So that we can be what God has desired for us to be. I wish we were taking communion now. Because in the upper room, remember what Jesus does after he breaks the bread. He gives thanks that by his own life, he can be an agent of healing in the world. That's what friendship is about. That's what community is about. Paul, the last time he has an opportunity to see his friends, he warns them. Somebody will try and distort this truth. He woos them. Remember what I did in my life so that there would be no conflict between my character and his being. So you could see Jesus here. Then he says goodbye and he just weeps because their friendships were real. And real friendships often bring about weep. Sometimes we grieve, but often sometimes we enjoy it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we talk about these kinds of friendships, it's it's intimidating to enter into them because they're painful. They're really painful. And yet, out of them comes great joy. Uh, we believe that to be true. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus uh, suffered for us so that we might have an, eternal, an inheritance that will never spoil a faith, not just as individuals, but as a community. Would you help us to embody that here in New York? We pray this in Jesus' name.